0: Welcome into the Autzen Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And on this Friday, we are going to discuss a little bit more basketball. It's kind of that time of the year. The calendar is flipped over to March. March Madness is here. Uh, the women's schedule has come to a, a pause in action because they're now waiting for the NCAA tournament. We'll discuss that. And we'll discuss also just how good is this Oregon men's basketball team, uh, one in which that has won uh, three in a row since uh, they lost to – excuse me, four in a row since they've lost to uh, USC uh, about two weeks ago. And they've won nine of their last ten games. They've got a game going up against the Beavers for the conference championship. We'll discuss how good is this Oregon team truly – uh, but first, Eric, let's let's talk with the women. Uh, their regular season has now come to a close. They are thirteen and eight overall. They have lost to the Oregon State Beavers now in um, a span of probably four or five days. I think twice. Uh, first at home on Senior Day, eighty-eight to seventy-seven, and then the quarterfinals of the Pac-12 tournament on. Uh, Thursday, they lost 71-64, a game in which early on in that game, Oregon looked like they were the better team, far superior team. It was 10-5 in the first quarter, and then Oregon just fell apart in that second. Oregon State came out like gangbusters in the third quarter uh, to double up the Ducks in both quarters, uh, 19-9 to in the second, to 31-21 in the third, and so... Uh, Even though Oregon outscored Oregon State by eight in that fourth period, the hill was too high and they could not overcome it. Um, I I guess, Eric, where is this team at right now going into the NCAA tournament? I mean, you you said a week ago, if not less than that, you didn't have a lot of confidence in them winning in Vegas. They they did not win in Vegas. Uh, Is this team in free fall?
1: it's hard to argue. It's not. And I mean, I think the thing that stands out to me here is one could argue that you look at what this team has done over the last couple of months. Really? Let's just say since January 1st, this team started eight and zero. they won their eighth game on January 1st against USC since then they are, um, five and eight. They played 13 games since January 1st and they beat USC and they are five and eight in that stretch. Um, You could point to the fact that all eight losses are to teams that are going to be in the NCAA tournament. That's fine and good. But the reality is the teams Oregon are going to be playing in the NCAA tournament are NCAA tournament teams, too. So I think it's really hard to look at the NCAA tournament, which starts in Oregon, by the way, has about two and a half weeks right now to kind of maybe do some soul searching, find some things. But when they get to March and they're going to be playing in San Antonio against whatever that opening round team is, and for those interested, yes, they will be in the field. I think they're probably going to be somewhere between a 6-7, maybe an 8-seed at worst. Um, I mean, shoot, a couple of weeks ago they were looked at as a 3-seed. But right. the reality is they haven't proven they can beat really anybody who's in the field. Um, they've played – I mean, they beat Oregon State in December. That was impressive. Um, they swept Washington State, who's like a borderline team. They beat UC Davis, who I think we think will be in as a conference champion from the Big West. Um, But outside of those wins, and those were all, by the way, pretty darn close games, except for the first game against Oregon State. It's just really hard to point and say, I feel confident that they're going to go out and have some success because they've just been losing so frequently since the turn of the calendar. And yeah, I think they're in free fall, though. I mean, they had an opportunity against Oregon State. You know, I know you don't have to he- to a pow-pow your point guard, and I think we can talk about how that hurts them, but there's an opportunity there to, to kind of punch back and, and, and prove some stuff, and I think you were really impressed with the way they started the game um, defensively, and they, they weren't good offensively until – I mean, neither team played well offensively until the second half. We're going to score 19 first-half points, and that's mm-hmm. just not, not good. good enough.
0: It's not good enough. You need that in the
1: first quarter. Yeah, you should not be scoring 10 and then 9 in the, in the first two quarters of the game, and that puts you in a tough spot, and I think that was – I think really telling is Oregon then plays pretty darn good offensive basketball in the second half. They score 45 in the second half combined. If you double that up, right, that's, that's 90 points. That's going to be enough to win games, but they allow the same amount. I mean, they allow 31 points in the third quarter and that's just not good enough. And, you know, there's a, there's a ton of stuff to unpack in terms of like what's going on here. I, I think, um, this is a team that has had a lot of uphill, you know, a lot of things that they've had to work through. But like at this point, you kind of have of excuses and you just look at the team and go like, I, I don't think you're confident from game to game that anyone is really going to be offensively consistent besides Niara Sabali. She had 16 and 8 on Thursday. Um, you've seen Taylor sale suddenly kind of find some shooting form, but not from three. She had 24 points, but was two for seven from three. Um, And there's just a lot of things to unpack here. But I think for me, the reality is, is you take Tahina Paupa off the team and off the roster. And from what Kelly Graves has said, we don't expect to see her unless they're kind of deep into the tournament. Um, And the way this team is playing, they're not going to be deep into the tournament without her. Um, You go into this NCAA tournament with, hey, I think Niara Sable is probably good for about 14 and 10 every game, 13 and 8 every game, I think, is her average. And you put, put her down for that there's not anyone else that I point to and say like, Hey, they're good to score double figures every game. I mean, there's no consistency offensively. And then defensively, this is a, a team that started the season playing pretty well on that side of the court. But I think teams have started to figure them out and go, they aren't particularly dynamic athletically, especially on the perimeter. They're big down low, but they're not particularly effective blocking shots, despite being six, seven, six, five up front with Prince and Saboli. Um, And I think you saw Oregon State in two consecutive games basically find a rhythm in the second half from three-point range um, and just have a barrage from three. Uh, You know, this is an Oregon State team that struggled to shoot early. They were two for 16 in the first quarter, but the rest of the game they shot over 60% from the field. So um, there's a lot of things they need to work on that's on both ends of the floor. And I, I just think, you know, Kelly Graves has been saying for a while now um, that they need to kind of sort some stuff out, but he was still optimistic that they would, but I, I, there aren't opportunities really to sort anything out now. I mean, you're playing your first NCAA tournament game in a couple weeks here. I, I just have very little confidence that, that they're going to be playing well enough to make a deep run into this thing. And I think best case is maybe they win a game and, and maybe they win two. You know, maybe they get hot and they upset a team in the second round.
0: I just don't have confidence I, so that can happen. I, I,
1: I don't. I don't either. I mean, they haven't beaten any of the good teams in the conference all year. And then Oregon State, a team that, by the on way, the, it's on, been, the rise. It's on the rise they've been playing better but like it's a team that we're gonna be by 20 in in, uh, in early december so it's, it's the, the, if you look at the two programs it's just saying they're kind of passing in the night and they're going opposite direction oregon certainly on the decline oregon stay on the incline i think we saw that this last week the beavers look like the better team
0: i really wonder how much is this mental fatigue of just everything like COVID-19 and playing in a pandemic in which they can't even practice in a traditional manner that they can practice. And look, everybody else has that and everyone else is going through that. But I look at this and wonder like how like they, they are having fun. They wanted to play, but as the losses mount, as the inconsistency continues as the team just consistently reshuffles the starting lineup to try and find some kind of spark and no spark is found. I just wonder like how everything keeps stacking up against Oregon. How much of this is just, Hey, we just, we, we tried, things didn't work. This wasn't our year. And while they're not quitting, it's at the same time, like we're going to be happy when the year is over.
1: I, they're not going to say it on the record, but I, feel like that's probably the case and i thought i was kind of telling i asked kelly graves following the loss in the, in the conference tournament kind of like what he wanted to do with the team and he said he said like i didn't really thought that way but he said i this was kind of comical he said i'm gonna to go to black butte and kind of get away from everything because i don't want to be in eugene bumping into the fan base because he knows that they're not very happy either um and you're right i mean like you know i just literally every scholarship player on this team started a game besides lydia giomi and kylie watson this year I mean, you talk about kind of reshuffling the lineup. I mean, they started Maddie Shear for her first start on, th- on Thursday in the quarterfinals of the tournament. You shouldn't be in a place where you're trying new things that frequently. Um, you know, this team never really developed a cohesive five. They had a cohesive four with Saboli, Bully, Pow Pow, and Mike Sell. Those four started 17 or more games each. That other spot, they kind of, at certain times, they tried to go big and play Sedona Prince there, and Angela Dugalich got a start. At other times they tried to go small and they started um, Sidney Parrish or Taylor Chavez or Jazz Shelley or then Maddie Shear. They just never found what their best five was. And I, I think you can point to a lot of things. And I think you're right in terms of the mental fatigue of this team. And, you know, I feel for all of these programs playing right now. Um, this has not been easy. Um, they have not been, you know, basketball is supposed to be fun. And I think one of the things that you, you look back at Kelly Grove's Graves coach teams um, with Sabrina Ionescu and Ruthie Hebert and Satchel. Chemistry. Sabre, they always had so much chemistry they're always having so much fun i don't think this team looked like they're really having much fun basically since december and you know i think i thought it was you know in retrospect i didn't really think much of it but you know kelly graves talked about in december that you know they sent their team home for christmas break because it said the team was having a, a you know a tough it was just they, need, they needed that that's that, that kind of opportunity of
0: seeing family
1: yeah they needed that and that was after eight games and then they had to play the file you know the final 20 or so games of the season and that maybe should have been a red flag right there. I mean, I'm not blaming them for needing that, but that should have been kind of telling that like this is not easy and they're having a difficult time with it. And then I think you know I think what gets overlooked a lot here is is just the the fact that they went on pause and that pause coincided with the stretch where they were supposed to be kind of getting right. Um, you know, they played this really difficult stretch in January where they played UCLA, Stanford, and, and Arizona all in the span of 11 days. They lost all three of those games, but on the back end, they were supposed to play a stretch of six games here, seven games, sorry, of Arizona State, Washington State, Washington, Utah, Colorado, Arizona State. Well, they only played two of those games. Um, Arizona State, Both the Arizona State games got canceled. Um, the Utah and Colorado games both got postponed. Sorry, it was six games. Um, so they just never had a chance to play these teams that they should be beating up on. I mean, these are the teams that they should have been able to find some confidence with. And, and they those games, generate some chemistry, too. Yeah, right. And, and those are these important on-court opportunities to develop and and build something and they never did that they get a game against uc davis which again they didn't play particularly well and then they lose that they won that game but you know it was kind of like okay i mean at least they got some reps together and then they lost to arizona and then the game against cal cal can't play that game and cal's the worst team in division one that's the game that where they could have at least gotten some minutes gotten some opportunity to jail that game gets postponed then they have to play stanford and ucla back to back They barely, you know, they almost beat Stanford. Then they get the the doors blown off against UCLA. Then they get the game against USC where it's like, okay, they finally get this opportunity to gel and they play really well. And they win by 24 points and you feel like, okay, maybe they found something. Um, But I just think that, and then they finish the year with the two losses to Oregon state. I just think they didn't have the start, the stop, the, the postponing games against teams that are very winnable, kind of eliminated the opportunity to kind of figure out your best five, to figure out your rotation, to kind of gel and have that chemistry. They never got that. And I think you're right in terms of I think they now hit this stretch here where I think they are probably, again, they won't say it publicly. I, I think there has got to be a sense behind the scenes of like, gosh, I am I, excited for this break, and I'm actually happy we're not playing for a couple of weeks here. And maybe that'll help them. Maybe they'll come out of this better. But I also feel like the last two times this season is kind of quote-unquote paused, they didn't come out of it better. You know, they came out of that Christmas break, and they beat USC by 23, and then turned around and lost a bunch of games. They came out of their pause and won a game against UC Davis and then lost a ton of games. And this is a team that enters March feeling very, very much like it's going to probably be a really short NCAA tournament run. Probably going to be a team that finishes just over 500 on the season, which is really disappointing because when they, you know, took their break in December, they were seven or no.
0: We'll save the discussion for like, where, where is this team going into next season? But Who is who is the best player on this team right now? And let's end it on a positive note. Who's the best team? Who's the best player on this team? And how can they in a short manner? What's the what's the path that they're going to have to take to win a couple games in the tournament? Like, is it hey let's let's ride the play of of Naria and and see what she can do as the focal point and just funnel everything through her or is it is it Aaron Boley the senior maybe rising to the occasion with a couple games left in her career like wh- how do, who's the best player and and what do you feel like is their path to success if they're if they can get it in the tournament
1: i think it's obley uh, she leads the team in scoring and rebounding um, you go pull up the stats she's a double figure machine scoring she's extremely consistent she's had one game since well, she's had three games all season she hasn't scored in double figures and one game since December 19th since that's been the case. I mean, so that's that's like the core of the season. She's been a double-figure performer. And I think she is the player that they they want to run the offense through in the post, and I think she's been pretty effective down there. Now, she has her faults. She tends to get a little excited and rushed when she's against bigger players, and she has a tendency to – To miss some shots, she shouldn't. I think the first game against Oregon State, she missed 10 shots, and probably I don't even know if any of them were outside the key. She missed some easy ones, and if she makes half of those, that game might be the other way, right? Um, I think she's their best player, and I think that's been kind of clear since the turn of the calendar, that that she was the only consistent offensive player, and in part because her shots are all around the basket, and those are kind of – you know it's it's easier to score there than it is from the perimeter. Um, They – I think you got to continue. I mean, let's put it this way. The two games against Oregon state, the time where they had a lot of success was when they fed Sabley and Prince around the basket. And I think that really is where their money is going to be made this year. And I think you go into the NCAA tournament thinking, if you can play a team or a couple of teams that are a little undersized and you can win down low and you can score with Sabley and Prince at the, in the post and, and kind of have some success there that gives you a good shot. Now, I think what this team really, really sorely needs is something, just somebody on the perimeter to be consistent. And we've seen Taylor Mike in her last two games against Oregon State play really well. She's averaged 20 points in those two games. She's made over 50% of her shots from the field. She's still struggling from three, but that was really, I think, nice to see. And so I think like if Mike and Sabali can both be consistent 15 plus scorers, that gives you something. Now, the other, just the real issue here though is outside. Of those players, and I won't even say Mike's so because she hasn't been consistent either. There's just there's no one you can point to from game to game that they're going to be offensively consistent. Like you look at what Aaron Bowley has done this season, and, and this is her last eight games, two points, seven points, two points. Then she had a couple nice games, 13, 16, and then four. Um, you You need a lot more out of your senior, and she just has not been consistent offensively. And I think this team just has to find it from three-point range. I think it's been really, really frustrating. You just, you know, when the season started, it was, this is going to be a tremendous three-point shooting team. And they just haven't been that, you know, they, they, they very seldomly have found consistency from, from range. And a team that touted all these elite shooters, like, you know, Dinero Sable leads the team in three-point percentage. She's seven for 13. Nobody else is over 40%. Um,
0: I don't think I would associate Sobley as like their, <laughs> she's not a, she's a not three a, point shooter or even like a top three three point shooter.
1: No, and she's not. And she's only taken 13 threes. And, and you look at the players that we thought were going to be marksmen from deep, and it was Aaron Boley, and she's a uh, career low 38.5. You took up, you know, Tahina Pow Pow was at over 40 most of the season. She ends at 39.5. Taylor Mikesell, who first game of the season, I think she was eight for 10, she shot 34% for the season. Um, Sydney Parrish, 37, that's solid. But Taylor Chavez – and these are the – you know, I think the two players that I think – I won't say were most disappointing, but that I expected the more – maybe they'll just say they were more – the most underwhelming performers this year in the backcourt that I thought you needed something to steady was Taylor Chavez and and Jazz Shelley. We talked in the offseason about how, like, maybe Chavez is going to step into a big role this year. And she went out and had a worse season than she had in the past. And I think those two players are – you know, Chavez, they both – these are the two best returning three-point shooters in the conference. They both shot mid-45s last year. Chavez was 33% this year. Shelley was 31%. And these are two players that we thought were going to carry some of the load offensively, and they just simply didn't do it. And I, I, think, I think one of my big takeaways from, you know, Sabrina Inescu's departure is, you know, when you have a player of that caliber, they lift the play of everybody around you. And I don't think that was like a new concept, but I think it, I think it's been very clear this year that those two players were really effective in part because of the shots that they were allowed to take because UNESCO is in the lineup. And when you ask those players to step up and play in a role that maybe they're not comfortable with, they just aren't as effective. And they went out there this year and just were, I mean, flat out not, not really what we expected. I mean, I think – I thought between one of those two – one of those two players I figured would be a steadying force and would be a full-time starter this year. And the fact that neither of them were ever that, the fact that both of them struggled with turnovers, the fact that neither were – I mean, they both shot below 40% from the field. They both shot you know below 34% from three. I expected more. Those are two of your veteran players and to not get much out of them. And you can, I think, toss Aaron Bowley in there. Those three were supposed to be kind of this, Hey, this is your core that has some experience. They were, they were, you know, integral parts of some good teams. They're supposed to be big parts of this. And they just, they both, they all three of them had basically their worst time, you know, their worst seasons at Oregon. And that right there, you could have maybe had one or two of them have their worst seasons, but for all three of them to just struggle like this, I think that was huge. So for this team to get it right, I think one or two of those players really has to step up. And if you're Kelly Graves, I think maybe you enter the NCAA tournament thinking, let's let some of these freshmen just play more. I mean, I think Sidney Parrish has been a better offensive player than Chavez and Shelley, and maybe even Aaron Bowley at times this year. And I think Matty Shear is your best perimeter defender. So maybe you play some of those players just more than you play these these veteran players. And I know that's difficult, but at this point in the season, I think it's pretty clear you're not winning a national championship, and maybe you get hot, and you make a run, but I think you kind of got to start looking towards the future. And to me, that is maybe moving away from some of these older guards and 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 giving more minutes to some of these
0: younger ones. Let's shift here to the men, um, a, a team that is currently eighteen and five overall, thirteen and four in Pac-12 play. They have first place in the standings going into the final weekend of the year. If they win at Oregon State, they are league champs. Um, this is a team in which they have won a lot of – they've played a ton of games over the last 10 days, and they are 9-10 and 10 during that stretch. Their lone loss is – a Monday, February 22nd game at USC, 72-58, in which the Trojans played their best game all year. Oregon played their worst game all year. Just bad luck for both of those situations to happen if you're Oregon. They've claimed wins over UCLA, Arizona, Stanford, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, and Washington during this win streak. Um, the question is: is, how good is this Oregon team right now? And I put this out there on Twitter after they beat UCLA 82 74 in which Mick Cronin later on would say that you the UCLA head coach views Oregon as a team that should be ranked eight, nine, or seven in the country. I, I honestly think I don't, I'm not saying that they Eric are better, but I think they are very close in terms of overall talent and, and, team, you know, team unity to the final four team back in 2017. And I have gotten a lot of pushback from a lot of duck fans thinking that, and I I understand. I don't, I think that 17 team is probably better, but I, I think this team could probably, if they played 10 games, I think they probably win four, maybe five of those 10 games. I'm going to give you some crazy. I think you're
1: a little crazy. I'm going to give you some pushback on that, and that's in part because of all the teams I've I've covered. That's probably my favorite team aside from last year's women's basketball team. So, there, so for me, there's a little bit of um, a little bit of favoritism, a little bit of uh, my, my my heart's kind of always been tied to that team. I still remember just before I took this this job with you, uh, sitting courtside. Uh, with a couple of friends watching Dylan Brooks buzzer beater against UCLA and just being kind of like, man, this is some special stuff that's going. I was an unbeaten UCLA at the time. Right. Um, And so I, you know, and maybe that's in part where you're getting pushback too, is I think that's considered like can historically maybe the best team and for good reason that Oregon has ever assembled. Um, Certainly since, you know, the Kamikaze kids. And I mean, you can argue the 1939 national championship team did something that Oregon's never done, but Gosh, that's almost 100 years ago. And and the way that the tournament was set up was totally different, and the caliber of player was totally different. And so, I don't know how you want to compare those, but like, I do, I I understand why there's pushback. I will push back and say, like, I, I don't know if they would win half the games, but what I do think they would do is provide some really interesting challenges. For like, I think this year's team is so unique to that team. That team, that team was successful in part because of the versatility of the players they had in terms of like they had very defined roles. You had Peyton Pritcher who brought the ball up the court along with Casey Benson. Both of them could shoot the three. Neither were really expected to primarily, um, you know, create their own shot. They were kind of like, you know, you, you'd set them. They in the were court. role players. Yeah. And, and they played their roles really well. And then you had Tyler Dorsey and Dylan Brooks who on the perimeter could just take over games. And Brooks did that for the most part of the season. And then in March, Tyler Dorsey took over. And you had kind of this one-two offensive punch where one day Dorsey was hitting seven or eight threes, the next day Dylan Brooks scores twenty-eight points, and it's really and, and some days they both were hitting. And when that was happening, they were basically unbeatable. And then in the post, you had these two elite shot blockers, rebounders, um, in Chris Boucher and Jordan Bell. And I should note of all the guys I just talked about aside from from Casey Benson, have all had NBA careers at some point. Um, you know, Pritchard was a freshman, so like he wasn't at the peak of of what he became. So you can't, I'm not going to say like he, you know, he's not the, he wasn't an NBA caliber player at that moment, but like he went on to become one, but, but Dylan Brooks, Jordan bell, Chris Boucher and Tyler Dorsey all went on to have some sort of NBA careers. And, and Chris Boucher and Dylan Brooks are still having very solid NBA careers. Brooks is a starter. Boucher, Matt knows this because he has him on his fancy basketball team and he's just been <laughs> mopping him up, not to bring up fancy sports, but we play fancy basketball together. Chris Boucher has been one of your better players this year. Yeah. And, he, he, and he was, he showed glimpses of that too. So, but I just looked at that team and thought like they had these very defined roles and you felt really confident. Like you had the three point shooting, you had the offensive uh, shot making ability from Brooks and Dorsey. And then you had these really great rim protectors and, and Chris Boucher also could stretch the court and shoot the three. But like, I just think you had so many different clear cut roles and this year's team is really different from that. Um, and, and maybe that's where they would pose some problems. I mean, like, that team was like you had a six three guard, a six five guard, a six 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 guard, and then you could go six nine, six ten. This year is like six five, six six all the way across the board. Um, and I, I think stylistically, if we're just t- we're not even talking about their accomplishments on the court, I think it would be very interesting to see these teams play. And this is where like I always think it would be really fun if if we could somehow make this happen and just like get these guys on the court when they are at the exact points in their career and see how they'd play. But but I digress because you can't. Um, I think the thing that to me separated these two teams was that the 2016, 17 team had already had a couple of years to gel and, and build some chemistry. Whereas this year's team has had to kind of do it on the fly and outside of, you know, Richardson and Duarte, no one else really has played together before this season. Um, and that year's that group's team, aside from Dylan Ennis, who was around the team, but was injured, didn't really have anybody. That they were kind of Peyton Pitchard, too. But they, I mean, they kind of knew what they were already. And I, I think that's why I'd give that group the edge. I think they're more veteran. They came into the season with these expectations and they succeeded. And this year's team has come in with a ton of talent, a ton of versatility and been really successful when they've all been together. And I think may, maybe that's the part that gets overlooked is that. I think you could – I mean, you look at the two teams' successes and you go, man, that, that team was 16-2 and two in conference, 33-6 and six overall. This year's team is is, is is not quite as successful. But when this year's team has had all its guys, it's been right up there. So, like, I, I think that 2016-17 team, I, I still think – I'd probably say they'd win, like, 7 out of 10. You know, they, they'd be the better team most nights. But I don't disagree because – well here, here's a question for you Matt. How many of these guys do you think are going to have NBA careers? Like we just ran through. Well, I think four guys on that team had NBA careers. Are that are there that many guys on this year's team?
0: I think Duarte is an NBA first round draft pick. I okay. I think I think you could make a very this, this might I actually would agree this might be a hot take. I was called a hot take when I made that this comment about the team being maybe better than the 17 team. But I think you could make a case that Duarte is the best overall player out of everybody. Like ever Uh, out of that group. So like, like you look at the 17 team. uh, If, if, if you put those guys in those years on the, on that role. So Peyton Pritchard is not the senior Peyton Pritchard. He's just a freshman. Right. Duarte is Dylan Brooks and Tyler Dorsey were terrific scorers but neither guy was a very good defender. Like, I don't think I look at them and say like, oh, these two guys are lockdown defenders. Put put them on your best player and Oregon will be fine. Like they, that was Jordan Bell for Oregon. Like it was, hey, if we need to shut somebody down, uh, put Dor- put Jordan Bell out there if, as long as he's a wing or or a, or a forward and we're good. Uh, If it's a point guard, shooting guard, maybe we might get a little trouble there. And that's where Benson would show up Um, or Dylan Ennis, uh, more importantly, Dylan Ennis. I I think Chris Duarte is by far a better defender than both Dorsey or Brooks. And he's just as good of a scorer, if not better than Brooks, I think. Um, And he's a better shooter than Dylan was. Dorsey was probably the – when Dorsey was on – like he was the best shooter out of the group, but he had some stretches, you know, up until March and that, that year where he was not at a high level. But I I think, I think people forget that case that Duarte is, I mean, Duarte Evan Mobley probably should win the award for defensive player of the year in the PAC 12, but Chris Duarte has a, has a chance of winning player of the year and defensive player of the year in the PAC 12 this year. Yeah, I, so, I mean, yeah, good. So I think Duarte, I think Duarte is a first round pick. Okay. Okay. I think one. Eugene Amarui will find his way on an NBA roster. I think Will Richardson will find his way on an NBA roster. And then I I do think we didn't we didn't know Peyton Pritchard would, would grow into a first round draft pick, but I, I do think there is a possibility that a out of LJ Figueroa, Eric Williams, and Fale Dante, and Frank Capang, I think there is a very high probability that one of those guys makes the NBA. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it's safe to say that there's Eugene, there's Duarte, there's Richardson, and then there's three and a half. There's three and a half guys that make the NBA on this year's current team right now. And the other, you know, the 17 team. They had Dorsey, who made the NBA, but is no longer in it. Dylan Brooks, who's still playing. Jordan Bell, who made the NBA, was a starter for the Warriors, but now is in the G League. Uh, Chris Boucher was not drafted, but has now made it to the NBA and has a good deal. And then Peyton Pritchard is a, fr- is a rookie on a first-round contract. So like, I don't think if – you, if you told me Peyton Pritchard would be a first-round pick in 17, I would have said no way. But, he, you know, that's the, pro, that, that's, the, that's the development and the progress you make when you play four years at Oregon, uh, more in college and you're an elite player. But I, this, is why, this is where I, I say Oregon, this year's team is, is really good and is up, up there with that 17 team because Will Richardson as a junior this season, in my eyes, is better than what you got out of Peyton Pritchard as a freshman in 2017. I think he's a better defender. I think he's a better shooter. He's a better guy that, that can drive and kick than Peyton was. Um, Peyton was a good spot up shooter, but I think Richardson is a better player than what Peyton was as a freshman. I, I've already said Duarte. I, I think Duarte is a significantly better defender and could lock up Tyler Dorsey and while, while matching him scoring wise uh, on the other end. And then I think, Eric Williams and Dylan Ennis are a wash. I think Eric Williams provides probably a little bit more help on the front court than he would as um, on, on, in the back court that Dylan Ennis did. But both guys are, are really solid role players and guys that can defend and, and provide you that versatility. Um, and then Dylan Brooks has the advantage over LJ Figueroa. And I, I honestly think, They didn't start Jordan Bell. Remember that Chris Boucher started. Um, But let's, I I honestly think that Chris Boucher would struggle with Eugene Amarui and it would have to be Jordan Bell out on the court to give or uh, to give that 17 team, a a, a player to defend Amarui because Boucher was a tremendous shot blocker, but a lot of his stuff came on the weak side. It did not come when he was defending straight up one-on-one And I think he would have a hard time with the skill of Eugene Amarui on the perimeter and being able to drive. And then also Eugene Amarui is very good at getting his defender up into the air. And that Chris Boucher was always susceptible to going for the shot block because a, he knew sometimes bell was behind him to block shots. Um, But I, th- I think Amirui could really give Boucher some, some some troubles. Now, on the other end, I think Amaruie would have some hard discussions of defending Chris Boucher. Um, the one thing that this team does not, this year's team does not have, is the above-the-rim type guy, whether it's defensively blocking shots or offensively on fast breaks, throwing down lobs for dunks. And I think. Oregon was intentionally planning on that being in Falle Dante before he got hurt. We're not counting him into the, in, into the equation here, but that was kind of the guy that Oregon was counting on to be the above the rim player. Uh, and then he tore his ACL like six or seven games into the season. Um, but I, I, I really think this team is, it's not going to surprise me if they make the final four, like th- that, it's going to come down to matchups. They need to beat Oregon state on Sunday and then they need to go and do some, some damage in Vegas. They don't need to win the tournament cause they're in, they could lose the next two games, you know, Sunday and then lose the first round game of the PAC 12 tournament. And they're in the tournament, the NCAA tournament. But I, 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 they need to get out of that, that eight, nine seed that they're currently being projected as. And if they can do that, if they can get a seven, if they can get a six shoot, they can get a five, uh I, I think a six is probably more advantageous than than a, a five or a four seed, but because you can avoid that one until the, the elite eight. But I, I think if they can if they can get out of that eight-nine realm and play the one seed in the elite eight, they've, and it's a one off game, they've got a chance to make the final four. I, I, I truly believe that. And they've got they're a terrific wing perimeter defense, they don't have the shot blocker but they are really, really good. And this is part of the problem that the conference has is they, they, they don't have the exposure to showcase it, and they're not getting the reputation that they should be getting because they've hit their stride now. And I think Duck fans, this is what I said on Twitter, is it, it sucks because I think they're witnessing one of the best teams ever at Oregon, and they haven't been able to, to, to be there in person to watch it play out.
1: That part sucks, doesn't it? Like, I, I I keep thinking about that. And I keep thinking on the women's side, like, we just had that conversation. I won't go with too much here, but I just wonder how much having fans in the stadium would have impacted some of their success and so some of the having fun part that I think has been out of it. But, like, f- from just a purely the, the fan perspective, like, yeah, it really sucks that this team, which has really found something, has not had 12,000 fans at its back for these games and that the fans haven't been able to really build a relationship with this team because Um, You know, I mentioned earlier that there hasn't been a lot. There there was so much roster turnover. A lot of these guys didn't play, uh, hadn't played at Oregon before this year, or hadn't played together. Unfortunately, unless a lot of these guys decide to come back for next season, a lot of the fans are never going to really get to see this Mm -hmm. this kind of core unit together. And I wanted to. This is where I wanted to kind of end this, Matt. I I think this is an interesting discussion. I I know you're. I'm sure that when we post this on DuckTerra.com, because I don't think you've posted that that point on the message board. I'm sure that you're going to get some blowback there. What do you think has to happen from now until the end of the season for fans to maybe ease up on the blowback from from your assertion that this team is is comparable to that 2016 17 team? Um, You know, and and just to put things in perspective, that 2016 17 team, they played Arizona and lost by three in the conference championship game. Boucher, they would have won
0: if Boucher played.
1: Yeah, Boucher was unfortunately injured the night before against Cal. I still kind of remember all of that and how stunning that was, and how much of a gut punch that was, and that team really felt like it was going to win the championship. And actually, for those, I mean, just to to make sure history is is right here, they went into the NCAA tournament, and I don't think, not very many people thought they were going Final Four. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the sense was they might be kind of an earlier exit than expected just because of that injury, and then they outproduced, and then, of course, nearly, nearly beat North Carolina, and who knows, maybe they would have beaten Gonzaga in the championship, but um, obviously that didn't take place but like so that so that 2016-17 team they lose to arizona in the conference championship they win four straight games go to the final four lose by one to north carolina um, in the final four what do you think would have to happen for this year's team for the conversation to shift and for people to say hey matt you were you're actually onto something a little bit before i saw it um, do you think they have to make the final four do you think it has to be a special run or or kind of what do you think needs to take place for people to be like, hey, actually this guy was kind of on to something. He wasn't as crazy as I thought he was.
0: Well, I don't think the Final Four is, is needed to get there. In um, large part, a big reason why I think you're, you're spot on that the 17 team, ha- A, had the familiarity. You know, Everyone knew nope. going in about Boucher, and they especially knew – about Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey, Jordan Bell, and Casey Benson. Um, there was a lot of excitement about Dylan Ennis because he was on the team the year before, tried playing, got hurt, granted a 6 year of eligibility. And then Peyton Pritchard was kind of like the freshman that was going to be the big superstar down the road. And so, and he was a local kid too, which yeah. brought excitement there as well. This year's team has, like you said, Richardson, Duarte, from, a, from just a connection to the fan base – and last year they were the second and third, you know, go to guys on the team, and sometimes fourth or third because of Anthony Mathis. Um, Peyton was always obviously number one. It also helped that that seventeen team they won seventeen games in a row. Yeah, I don't know if people remember that or not, but they went a stretch from two from November twenty second when they beat Tennessee and Maui, uh, in the. Losers bracket to January 26th, winning 17 straight games games that included wins over Utah, Stanford, uh, Oregon State, Washington, UCLA, Southern Cal, uh, UNLV, Alabama, Boise State, um, Connecticut. You know, so they they beat some big names and they won just a ton of games, 17 straight, and so that really. I think when they were on that 17-game win streak, it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, this team's really good. We need to pay attention to it early on because how, how many wins are they going to string together here? Um, and then after they lost, they lost again a couple days later, a couple weeks later at UCLA. And then going into the NCAA tournament, or the Pac-12 championship game, they'd won eight in a row again. You know, They'd, they'd strung together a really good run, and you could legitimately argue if Boucher doesn't get hurt, That's a win. They've now won nine in a row going into the NCAA tournament and going into that final four game, they would have won 13 games. You know, they won 12 of the last 13 going into the final four game. So I I think what's it gonna take for this year's team to to get there? One, they got to keep winning. You know, if 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 they go into this winning, you know, at Oregon State on Sunday, that's five in a row. You, you, you win three in a row in Vegas to win the championship. So you've, now you've won the regular season championship. You've also won the conference tournament. They've only done that once under Dana Altman's time. They've won the league a, th- a bunch, whether it's in Vegas or in the regular season, uh, but they've only done it, only won both one other time. And that was when they had the number one seed the year before in 2016. So I, I, I think you need, to, you need to string some wins. You need to be, you know, eight, no, go, you know, winning winners of eight in a row going into the tournament and then, it's, it's getting to that second weekend. And I, I, I think to, to really have the fan base thinking the same lines that I am, it's probably going to take a blowout win or two mixed in there. You know, they, they, they blew out – I don't know if blowout's the, the right term, but they won by double digits against Arizona. They won by eight uh, in a game in which they, it probably should have been double digits. Um when Oregon, you know, they just missed a couple of late free throws to keep it there. And then UCLA added some garbage, you know, baskets in the last minute. But it that's what it's going to take is some games where they're in control late. And in the final two or three, four or five minutes of the game, there's no real like worry that, that this game is is in doubt and that Oregon has sec- completely secured it. I think if Oregon goes to Oregon State on Sunday and blows them out and wins the league title on, on their rivals four, that's going to go a long way as well.
1: I got, I got one final thought here, Matt. Dan Altman better win Pac-12 coach of the year, right?
0: Oh, yeah, hands down.
1: Like, I, and I, I bring this up because I was stunned it's, it's been so long. I know he's won three, right? But it's yeah. been five years since he's won one, and uh, it would be, to me, a real disappointment if they give it to anyone else. Like It really would. Like I, He's clearly the class of the conference mm-hmm. every year. He has them surging at the end of the season, and um, I would it would be just bizarre to me if they gave it to anyone else. And I, you know, I, I know there are other good co- coaches in the conference, and other teams that have played well. And I, I think like maybe you'd look at Andy Infield at USC, and, and you could give him a real look at that, just because of the way that program has kind of played with some youth, and the way Mick Cronin has responded at UCLA after losing one of its best players to a torn ACL. But like, gosh, this this Oregon team has had its back against the wall so much this season, and the way it's rallied. This is one of his best coaching jobs, and I, I really hope the conference um, honors him. And, and by the way, if he does, he becomes uh, the second coach in Pac-12 history to have, sorry, the third coach in Pac-12 history to have four um, Pac-12 coaches of the years. He joined Lou Olson and Mike Montgomery. And in doing so, to me, I think he's already there, but really solidify himself. As, himself. As one of the very best coaches the conference has ever had.
0: I think he's the best coach Oregon's ever had.
1: Oh, by I—I don't even think there's any question. Yeah, I don't. Like not only just
0: in men's basketball, but I think, I think ever in any sport.
1: I think over. Yeah, I think the longevity there, right? I mean, like because you—you can argue about what Chip Kelly brought the heart, you know, the height of his time, but he was only at Oregon for four years. Dana Altman's been here for over a decade, and he has been a consistent winner. It's really impressive. You just go pull up his his success and his win, you know, his season by season stuff here. You take out the. The weird season after the final four year um where they replaced everybody and there was i think some real kind of like push pull of like who's the leader of this team is it peyton pritchard is it elijah brown is it troy brown like what's going on maybe mikhail mcintosh Mac- is the best guy you take that season out this is what he's done since 2012 13 sweet uh, sweet 16 round of 32 round of 32 elite eight final four sweet 16 last year's team would have certainly gone further and then this year's team um the guy hasn't the guy's always won at least 10 conference games. He's won more than 13 half the time. Um, He is certainly just like, like I said, like I think his career, and some of this will be dependent on how much longer he coaches and if he's able to kind of get over, if he wins a national championship, I think he really enters the discussion of, and we should note, uh, this, this award, it, it, it is not, you know, John Wooden predates this award. The award is named after John Wooden. No one's going to touch John Wooden because I think he won 11 national championships at UCLA. Um, that's never going to be matched. But, like, in terms of the modern era since, like, the mid-70s, he then, I think, enters the discussion with the Lute Olsons and Mike Montgomery's of, like, is he one of the five best coaches in the conference history?
0: I think he needs to win a title to get in the realm with um, Lute Olson. Lute Olson. Um, it's Mike Montgomery, with, like, yeah. part of me says yes, but if if I remember right, Mike Montgomery coached with sustained success at Stanford and then eventually at Cal for a really long time. Yeah, if I, looking at this, like, Montgomery started in '86, '87, left Cal in 2004. And or left left Stanford in 2004, returned to the Pac 12 in 2009. And you know, NCAA tournament, NCAA tournament, NIT, NCAA tournament, NCAA tournament, NIT. So, like, he has almost 400 wins at Stanford and another 130 at Cal, a winning percentage of 70 percent with the Cardinal and a winning percentage of 64 percent with the Bears. Um, if if you're looking from a perspective of Dana Altman, his winning percentage is pretty good at Oregon. It's it's seventy one point nine percent. So, I mean, he's in his eleventh year right now with the comp with the team, and he's on track to go that way. Like, I, I think it's I, just going to be, will he coach long enough to get there?
1: Yeah, I know we've now made this little short comment i had into bigger one but i think it's kind of interesting i I actually think those two are like kind of they're pretty comparable in terms of their careers of like they were very very consistent like as you said you look at mike montgomery and the sustained success like he literally he coached from 1993 all the way to 2003 at stanford without losing or sorry, with winning 10 or more conference games and then every single season at cal for six years did the same thing dane altman like i said has done that from 2011 to 2020 now that's like I, I think their careers have been actually kind of comparable if you just compare them. So I think, really, like, I think if Dana Altman coaches close to as long as Montgomery, and that would require him probably coaching for another six to seven years. Yeah. Um, I think you can really start being like, you know, maybe he surpasses a Montgomery, especially if he has some NCAA tournament success, because Montgomery, for all the you know, regular season success, had a couple of lead eights, had a final four, it never really broke through. I think Dana Altman has a chance here. I know we said this before in the pod to win a national championship. If that happens, he securely, he, you know, he passes Montgomery and then it yep. becomes, he, he enters that next tier um, behind and maybe he catches Lute Olsen at some point, but I think that would take a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. And until we talk to you next week, you have been listening to the and Audible's podcast.
1: Talk to you later, folks.